Well, again, good morning, and uh, it is good to see so many familiar faces, too. Uh, being a seminary student, I've had uh, some of you in the some of you in the audience as my uh, instructors, uh, some of you as classmates. Uh, working at, at headquarters, some of you were my were my coworkers, and uh, working in the dorms at Alphabus, uh, some of you were my students. <laughs> um, but I'm not here to talk about me, so let's let's talk about Jesus. How how does that sound? Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gospel text this morning is a a very familiar one. It's the account of of Jesus walking on the water and and Peter's floundering attempts to replicate that same miracle. We've heard heard that story a few times before, haven't we? Ever since our our vacation Bible school days, this text has, has inspired us and excited us. We've heard it a million times since that first time in Vacation Bible School, and this morning you're going to hear it again, one more time. And maybe you saw the, the sermon text and the title in the, in the bulletin this morning and decided you were, you were going to check out, deciding that you've heard this all before and that you could even preach this same sermon. Typically, the, the, this gospel text is, is preached in this way, that you, you are Peter, the disciple in the boat, and if you would just have enough faith and get out of your comfortable little boat. God could do great things through you. But you, you need to learn from Peter's example and keep your eyes on Jesus or you will fail. So do bold things. Just keep looking to Jesus. There, sermon, sermon over, right? We can all proceed on to lunch. Well, not quite. I would submit to you that, that this text that we're going to read and study this morning isn't so much about Peter's boldness in getting out of the boat as it is about the supernatural, efficacious power of Jesus' words which created and sustained faith. Again, our text is from Matthew 14, starting at verse 22. And I would invite you to stand with me as you are able, as we read God's word together. Matthew 14:22 and following, reading in Jesus' name. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, being beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost, as they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word 
is truth. Please sanctify us in that truth this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of every present heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. This, this miraculous gospel text directly follows another one of Jesus' greatest miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. The crowds who were so enthralled by Jesus' teaching had followed Jesus and his disciples out to a deserted place. It's possible that Jesus had retreated to this deserted wilderness with his disciples to mourn the death of John the Baptist earlier in chapter 14. But whatever his reason for withdrawing into this desolate wilderness, away from the public eye, he couldn't stay hidden for long. The crowds followed him. But instead of being upset that his quiet time was interrupted, Jesus had compassion on the crowds and began to heal the sick among them. When evening came, the disciples told Jesus to send this great throng of people away. The crowd was hungry, and the disciples could finally have their time with Jesus that they had come out to the desolate place for. But Jesus would have none of that. So he told the disciples to feed the crowds. The disciples must have thought, Really? You can't be serious. How can we do this? The only thing we have here for food is these five loaves of bread and these two fish. But Jesus takes those five loaves and those two fish and says a prayer over that food. And then he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, instructing them to distribute it among the crowds. And Jesus did just that. And those five loaves of bread and those two fish fed the entire crowd on that day. Around 5,000 men, plus plus women and children. And this miracle so affected the people that they were scheming to, as John put it, come and take him by force and make him king. They had seen a great miracle. A man who can take just a little bit of food and feed a small city. Imagine if this man was their king. They would never go hungry again. They would never have to worry about where the next meal would come from. This man could provide everything that they needed or wanted. What better man to have rule over them? But that was not Jesus' plan. He did not come to feed man's bellies, but to nourish their souls. He did not come to rule Israel, but to die for the sins of the world. So Jesus sends the disciples away in the boat while he sends the crowds back home. And I can't imagine they went too willingly, though. Here was a man who was the perfect candidate to run their country, but yet he would have nothing of it. Well, so after bidding the crowds adieu, Jesus, who is now alone, goes up on one of the mountains to spend some time alone in prayer. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in in human flesh, needed to spend some quiet time alone with his heavenly Father. Here he was, alone and in the dark, pouring out his soul to God. We're not told what he prayed for, we're, we're only simply told the fact that he prayed. But think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, God in human flesh, needed to spend time in prayer with his heavenly Father. 
Jesus, the, the, the same Jesus who declared, I and the Father are one, needed to spend time alone conversing with his Father. But it's not as if Jesus is, is having a conversation with himself. Here, here we see a picture of the triune God. Jesus, the Son, praying to God the Father in and through the Holy Spirit. But think of this. If Jesus, God in human flesh, needed to spend time with his Heavenly Father, how much more do we need to spend time with our Heavenly Father? Us, as, as beloved children of the Heavenly Father, need greatly to spend time with him in prayer. And he desires that we would. He loves it when we spend time with Him. And you see, in in, in some aspects, our relationship with the Heavenly Father resembles a a long-distance relationship between a man and a woman. It takes time, energy, and a constant commitment to communication. I read earlier this week of a love story from World War II. There was a 20-something-year-old man who had begun dating a girl in 1941, just before the war broke out. And like so many of that great generation, he put his life as a coal miner on hold and joined the war effort. But he didn't put his new relationship with this gal on hold. During the next four years of the war, he kept up a regular correspondence with his girlfriend, He didn't have the the luxury of Facebook or email. He couldn't FaceTime or Snapchat his girl. He had to do it the old-fashioned way. Handwritten letters. And this soldier let his girlfriend know everything. How the war effort was going. How the food was. How his fellow soldiers were getting along. When his buddies would go out into town for a night of booze and women, this man stayed home to write his girl. In his letters, he often talked of his plans when the war was over. His want for a career other than coal mining. His want for a family. And for her part, too, the girl was faithful to her soldier. Every day, she would read the newspapers, hoping that the war would be drawing to a close. She also spent time writing him letters. And each one of those letters that was sent was special. The gal kept kept in an old shoebox every single letter that she received from her soldier. And after the war was over, these two lovebirds did end up tying the knot and spent the rest of their lives together. And shortly after, after both of these lovebirds had, had passed away, a grandson of theirs was looking through some of their belongings and found the letters that his grandfather had written still in that shoebox. There were over 300 letters in that shoebox. 300 letters, that's that's one way to keep a a long-distance relationship alive. In much the same way, you and I have a long-distance relationship with the Heavenly Father. True, God is is near us all the time, and wherever two or three are gathered in in the name of Jesus, here He is in our midst. And we know that God is only a, a prayer away. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Yet our relationship with the Heavenly Father demands all the time and energy and constant communication that a long-term relationship requires, or long-distance love relationship requires. Just as the hero in World War II took time to communicate with his girl back home, so too do we need to take time to communicate with our Heavenly Father. And He has written us His love letter 
the greatest love letter of all time. And we should spend time reading his word day in, day out, reading that love letter. And he desires that we, in turn, will communicate with him. He loves it when we pray to him. He loves to hear your voice. At St. Paul's, we've been studying the Psalms on Wednesday night. And during this study, we hear repeatedly time and time again that the Lord loves to hear the voice of his, of his children, of his people, when we pray to him. Just this past Wednesday, we heard David say towards the end of Psalm 28, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. And earlier in the Psalms, we read that God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when we cried to him. The Lord loves it when we come to him in prayer. While Jesus was was spending time on the mountain with his heavenly Father, the disciples were probably doing some praying of their own. They had taken their boat and tried to go on ahead of Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, just like, just like Jesus had instructed them. But while they were out, quite a, a long distance from land, the sea began to get rough. The winds picked up very quickly, and, and the disciples found themselves fighting a, a terrible headwind. Unfortunately, they, they weren't able to make too much progress against this strong wind. I can only imagine that there were some prayers offered by the disciples uh, to asking God to calm the winds or at least turn the winds in, in their favor. These experienced sailors would have had to lower the sail and dig out the oars and begin rowing to keep the boat straight against the waves. And this is where our text gets really exciting this morning. Verse 25 of our text says, In the fourth night of the watch, Jesus came to them. Okay, well, there's nothing really truly spectacular there. In the fourth night of the watch, that was any time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And the disciples must have been tired and stressed from fighting the wind and the waves for so long. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes to them. But the manner in which Jesus came to the disciples was what really makes this text memorable. Remember, the the disciples are in the boat a long way away from land in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus came to them, not in a one-man skiff or on a jet ski. Jesus came to them, walking on the water. The wind howled. The waves crashed. But these did not affect Jesus. He simply walked on the sea as easily as, as you or I will walk out of church this morning. But the fact that Jesus was walking towards the disciples on the water did not bring them relief or calm or or any of that. It's safe to say that the disciples were scared stiff. Verse 26 of our text says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Here they were, grown men, shrieking like little girls. No offense. They were hardened fishermen, tax collectors, and revolutionaries. These disciples had seen the crippled walk, the sight of the blind restored, demons cast out of people. These disciples who sat at the feet of Jesus as he taught them did not now recognize their master. They could not explain how Jesus could be walking 
on the water. I mean, I mean, how could he? That defies every single law of nature we've ever known. And yet Peter and, and the rest of the disciples all saw, all saw, or at least thought they saw, Jesus walking on them, walking on the water towards them. But that's physically impossible. So they came to the only logical conclusion they could. It's a ghost. <laughs> they must have thought, Jesus can't possibly be walking on the water. So what we're seeing here is his ghost. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Isn't that right, Commander Spock? The disciples, unable to come to terms with what they were seeing, explain it in the only way they know. It's a ghost. It's Jesus' ghost. And Jesus hears these frightened screams of the disciples and immediately seeks to bring comfort to them. In verse 27, he says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus tries to reassure his disciples that he is not a ghost, but is in fact their beloved teacher. Take heart, he says. Be of good courage. But Peter won't have any of the comfort that Jesus sought to bring. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Did you hear that? Did you hear the doubt that's plaguing Peter? Peter doubted Jesus at his word. Peter doubted that Jesus was who he says he was. Peter says, Lord, if, if it is you, command me. That one little word, if, betrays Peter's true feelings. If it is you. It's almost as though Peter is saying, Lord, I, I see you there. It looks like you. It sounds like you. But if it is you, and I think that it might be, then command me to come to you. In a way, Peter is, is echoing the prayer of the centurion who says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There is a part of Peter that, that wants to believe that this is Jesus. I mean, the, the guy just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He just created something out of nothing. I want to believe that he can do the impossible and the incredible, but I, I just can't believe what I'm seeing. So Peter battles the doubt that's raging inside of him. And I bet Peter wished that the phantom ghost Jesus would have just simply remained quiet or simply vanished into the mist, into the thin air, gone. But no such luck. Jesus says to Peter in verse 29, Come. One little word. Come. Jesus had called Peter to himself. And now Peter, he is faced with a decision. He's made his, his bet, placed his wager, and Jesus has just called him out on it. I see your challenge, Peter, and I call it, Jesus says. Now Peter has to decide if he would risk it all by following through or, or chicken out and stay on the boat. And I can just hear the, the debate that must have gone on in Peter's mind. Jesus called you, you better get going. But wait, you can't be serious. This is crazy. The boat is a safe place. If, if I leave, I might drown. But then on the other hand, if this is Jesus. And so Peter, seeking to satisfy the doubt that haunted his mind, climbed over the railing of the boat and found himself standing 
on the water. What a strange yet yet amazing feeling Peter must have had. Peter walking, standing on the water. And he must have stood there in amazement for a little bit, shocked at what was happening. But then he remembered Jesus' call to come to him. So Peter takes one tentative step towards his master, and then another, and then another, and then another. And the next thing that he knows, he is there, standing next to Jesus. And he probably stood there for, for a little while, shocked and wide-eyed amazement at what was happening. And then two thoughts must have run through Peter's mind simultaneously. First, this man who called me is definitely not a ghost. He is Jesus. <laughs> Doubting Peter needed an up-close and personal experience to prove Jesus' word. And now any doubts that he had as to the identity of the water walker had vanished. But the second thought that must have ran through Peter's mind must have been something like this. Wow, that's a big wave. Verse 30 of our text says, When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And again, the doubt that plagued Peter on the boat plagued him on the sea. Peter, who was being upheld on the sea by the word of Jesus, again began to doubt. He saw the wind, he saw the waves, and he became afraid. And Peter's doubt and fear continued to, continued to raise their ugly heads, just as they did on the boat. Peter's fear caused him to doubt that the one who bid him come to him on the sea could sustain him while on the sea. Peter's fear and doubt was, was not without consequence. Fearing doubt caused him to sink. And Simon Peter, whose nickname was Rock, did exactly what a rock does when you place it on the water. Peter began to sink. The rock, once, once upheld and sustained by the word of Christ, now begins to doubt that word and finds himself sinking to the bottom of a stormy sea. So Peter does the only thing he could do. He called out to Jesus. In verse 30 of our text, he says, Lord, save me. Now here was Peter, an accomplished fisherman. He knew how to swim and how to tread water. But Peter knew that he was in over his head on this one and petitions the Lord to save him and rescue him. And Jesus did just that. He reached out his holy hand and grabbed the drowning disciple. And Peter, no longer upheld by the word of Christ, is upheld by the hand of Christ. And as he holds on to the hand of his disciple, Jesus rebuked Peter, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? O you of little faith. Unfortunately, this, this wasn't the first time that the disciples had heard this rebuke of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses those who are worried and anxious about where, what they would wear. And Jesus looks to the beautiful roadside lilies and describes their beauty. And he said, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, Peter's lack of Jesus was twofold. Twice Peter had doubted Jesus. And Jesus' rebuke of his disciples was a well-earned rebuke. First, Peter doubted 
who Jesus was. And then he doubted what Jesus could do. And this Jesus, the rock of ages, who had just miraculously fed the multitudes and again had shown his power over creation by walking on the water. And as soon as he and Peter set foot onto the boat, the wind ceased, calm as can be, a sea of glass. And what did the other disciples of Jesus do when these two rocks returned to the boat? Did they commend Peter for his boldness and encourage him by saying, Oh, nice try, Peter. You'll get it right next time. Just the next time you do this, don't, don't take your eyes off Jesus. No, it's not what they did at all, was it? Those who were on the boat forgot all about Peter and worshipped Jesus. They said, Truly, you are the Son of God. The disciples missed that point after the feeding of the 5,000, but they understood it here. And Jesus, their rabbi, was not just a good man and a great teacher. He is the Son of God. I began this sermon by describing the way that this text is typically preached, that you, you the audience, are Peter, and you need to be bold and, and get out of the boat and go do something for Jesus. Just, to, just as long as you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll be fine. So, like Peter, do bold things. Well, in, in one sense, that is true. You are Peter, but you are not the bold, brash, daring Peter popularly portrayed. You are Peter, but you are the doubting, fearful, and floundering Peter. You try to be bold for your faith, but instead, you are fearful. You try and be daring in your actions, but instead, you doubt. You often know the right thing to do, but, but, but fear and doubt hold you back from doing it. Yes, yes, you are Peter. And when Jesus reveals himself to you through his word, instead of, of trusting and believing that word, you doubt the validity of it. You begin to explain away the miracles of Jesus and his teachings. And when you're in the midst of the storms of life, you look at the size of the waves, the things that are going on around you, and you begin to sink. You forget that the Lord Jesus, who called you unto himself through his word, is able also to sustain you through that same word. And if any of that describes you this morning, know this. That just as Jesus was near to Peter to save him, Jesus is near to you to save you. Instead of delivering you from drowning, Jesus desires to deliver you from your sins. You see, it's your sins, all of your doubts, all of your fears, all of your flounderings that Jesus came to die for. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, he took all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your fears, all of your doubts, which separated you from God, and he bore them on his body. By his death, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. He removed the dead weight which held you pinned to the bottom of the sea and raised you up and breathed life into you. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your hearts, but God made you alive. While your sin-sick soul was drowned at the bottom of the sea, Jesus reached out and grabbed a hold of you and saved you.
Maybe today you are Peter, safe and secure on the boat with Jesus. Or maybe today you are our Peter, drowning in doubt and fear. And if you are in the latter camp, call out to Jesus. He is ever-present and earnestly desires to reach out and deliver you. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us through your word and that you continue to sustain us through your word too, Father. Continue to bless us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.